Children are dismissed for Children's Church. They can head on out. For the rest of us, would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 111. Psalm 111 is where we will find ourselves today. This past week we had a, um, a men's core team meeting and John Harvitt broke out. He started preaching on Psalm 111. I wanted to stand up and say, stop it. You're going to steal all the thunder and, you know, all the guys are going to listen to you and not to me. But then I was reminded that, you know, most guys don't remember what they were talking about anyway. So, so if it's a refresher, that's a good thing. Um, so we're in Psalm 111. We're, we're, we're winding down our study of the Psalms for the summer. We have one more week. Uh, next week, uh, we'll have a Psalm and then we will jump into the Gospel of John and we will be there for some time. So, if you're wondering what we're going to preach about, we're going to work through the books of the Bible. Uh, we're going to work through the Gospel of John, and we're just going to take it uh, beginning in chapter 1. So um, be excited for that. Psalm 111, let me give you a little bit of understanding, a little bit of background around the psalm. We've already uh, read it. We're going to read it again, though. Uh, but here's where we are. Psalm 111, in, in the midst of Hebrew poetry, uh, many of us uh, don't know much about poetry. Right? I mean, some of you might be English scholars, you know, there might be KU professors like John Lamb, who like is a Milton scholar, all that kind of stuff. But many of us are not uh, poets by nature. We don't uh, write poetry. We don't know a lot of poetry. Uh, many of you have not read poetry. But in the English, um, in a lot of English poetry, uh, we see that there's rhyming that occurs, uh, you know, limericks and, you know, just different ways that, you know, poetry kind of works itself out. In Hebrew poetry, what we find is that there are two different types of, uh, I guess, poetry, uh, linguistic um, you know, tools that the, that the uh, psalmist has at his disposal. The first is what we call parallelism. And so what we find is that oftentimes we will say something like, the Lord is good, and then the second line will be, the Lord is supreme, right? And so what we find is that there's a, a parallelism that occurs in the midst of Hebrew poetry where it's, it's a line that makes sense to us and then that line is then amplified or um, sort of made bigger in the second line. That's called parallelism in the midst of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. The other way, the other tool that the Hebrew poet has at his disposal is one of acrostic. In Psalm 119, we see that there are 22 sections divided by eight verses, that brings us to 176 verses, uh, that speak about uh, God and His Word. Now, in the midst of acrostic, what we find is that um, they use the Hebrew alphabet to determine um, all of those. There's 22 Hebrew uh, letters in the alphabet. Uh, there, are, there are no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. It's all vowel pointing. So we have 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 111, as well as Psalm 112, are also Hebrew acrostic poems. So Psalm 111, what you'll see is you'll see, praise the Lord, you know, this praise, you know, really hallelujah, right? That's what it says, hallelujah. And then there's 22 lines broken up within 10 verses that speak about this, who God is, his character, what we are to believe about him. But also in, in, in a couplet is Psalm 112. So if Psalm 111 is about who God is, Psalm 112 is about who man is supposed to be if they're following God. So we see this Hebrew acrostic poem, uh, and again, you don't see it in English, you only see it if you're reading Hebrew, um, and there's not a lot of people who read Hebrew. 
But we see this you know, as it goes through 22 lines. So hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And we all say the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So let me tell you where we're going today. Where we're going today is this. How are we to praise the Lord? How are we to praise the Lord? Secondly, we're going to look at why we are to praise the Lord. Why should we praise the Lord? And then it's summed up with this idea of fearing the Lord. And what does it mean to fear the Lord as a child of God? So let's begin. So we are called to worship in the very first part. This is actually the, the preface to this acrostic poem, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is how we say that in, in the English way. So here's the question. We are called to worship, and he says, we are called to worship, so let me ask you this. Why are we going to church? Why do we show up on a Sunday morning? Why would we come to church every day, every Sunday, to sing and listen to this guy? Well, 2 through 9 tells us why we are to be praising the Lord. But first, let's look at the idea of how we are to praise the Lord. We see this. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation. We see in the midst of this that there are, are certain ways that we can think about this. First of all, we are to go intentionally to worship. I will give thanks. I will what that means is, is that everybody here got in their car, uh, maybe not the you know, people who live across the street, but everybody got in their car and they said, I'm going to worship today. I'm going to praise the Lord today. There's an intentionality with which we come and we are called to worship. Again, we're talking about how we are to worship. Intentional. We are also called, notice what it says in Psalm 111, I will give thanks. We are, come, we are to come thankfully I mean, the very ability for you to wake up this morning was given to you by the Lord God of heaven. The ability to get into that car and to drive here was given by him. The food you ate, the clothes that are on your back, the, your ability to come in here was all a gift from God. So not only are we intentional about how we come to worship, we also come with hearts full of thankfulness and praise to the Lord because he's a good God, and he gives us good things. But we also see that we are also to come to the Lord with my whole heart. 
Now notice that praise the Lord, you know, just, just by way of grammar, we know that praise, this idea of hallel, is a transitive verb. And if you're an, a, a grammarian, and I'm not a grammarian, but I understand a little bit about grammar, a transitive verb needs a direct object to fulfill it. And so the, the direct object of the praise that we have is to the Lord, not to something else, but it is to the Lord, that we are called to praise the Lord. And again, in Psalm 111, verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord. We see that it is theocentric, that it is meant to go towards God alone. There is intentionality. It is to be thankful praise. But we also see in the midst of this that I'm, I'm to come with my whole heart. I'm to come with with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength to the Lord when we come in. That means when we wake up, and in in the midst of being intentional and volitional about our worship, we should pray, Lord, so warm the fires of my heart that I can come and worship you with a heart full of praise, with a white-hot affection for all that you have done. The struggle though, and I laugh about the struggle, is that there are many days I come into worship and my heart is not ready to worship the Lord. Now I've done the right thing um, in in the sense that I'm I'm coming to worship, but I have not prepared my heart. I am not in in a posture of gratitude as I walk through the doors. And my heart is not ready to praise him. I heard it um, said, uh, Steve Lawson was speaking about this uh, specifically, and he said, you know, there's something wrong about when we come in and we have what he considered a casual worship service. And what he meant by it, he did not mean about what we wear in terms of our clothes. He was not saying that we we need to come in in that way, but what he was saying is a casual worship service is one where you come in and you're just kind of hanging out. He's saying, you know, a casual worship service is, a matter of fact, he called it an oxymoron, sort of like dry water or a wise teenager or jumbo shrimp or maybe a good casserole, you know? I mean, I mean all of those things, right? I mean, as we, as we think through, what, you know, there's oxymorons, right? That's what casual worship is meant to be. We're meant to actually think about coming in and like, Lord, turn my heart. I want to give everything that I have to you this morning. I want to be reminded of my sins and to be reminded of the forgiveness and the redemption that I have in Christ. And Lord, I so want you to work on my heart that my affection comes out as I sing with great joy for all that you have done for me. And in the midst of that, I also want you to to work on my heart in such a way that, Lord, there are things in my life, there are things and people and circumstances in my life that are devastating to me right now that I must come to you and just pour out my heart to you. Like, I don't want to be cold or callous towards you at all, but I want my heart's affections to be hot as I come into the worship service. Again, intentionality, grateful to the Lord, but also with a heart, with our whole heart. But I love what it says here too. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. In the company of the upright and in the congregation. This is what it's saying. It's saying that when I come, I want to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when I come together as the body of Christ, 
there is something wonderful. When I hear other people singing and other people praying, like it, it enlivens my soul. I mean, one of the things that COVID did for us is it made us long for the assembly of the congregation of the people of God. It made us, when we can come in here, we go, yes, I have missed that. And we need the body of Christ. We need the communion of saints. We need the family of God to help us along the way. There was a, a story about an old Scottish preacher. Um, and I don't know if there's any young Scottish preachers. They're always, all these stories always begin with an old Scottish preacher, right? There's an old Scottish preacher. And in the midst of his congregation in the highlands of Scotland, he recognized that there was an individual who had stopped going to worship because of the death of his wife. And he was despondent and he was grieved to the point where he could not go to worship, or at least he was not intentionally going to worship. And this was a quiet man. And so this quiet man, um, this pastor, went to his door, and it was evening. It was a cold Scottish night. I don't think there are any warm Scottish nights. So he went to his, his, his door, and he knocked on the door, and the man opened the door, and the pastor walked in, and not a word was said between them. And the man sat down in a chair next to the fire, and the pastor sat down next to the fire, and they just looked at the fire, and they looked at the fire for about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. And then the pastor you know, grabbed the poker that was next to the fire and he takes one of the pieces of wood and he kind of pulls it apart and pulls it out from the fire. And that, that, that piece of wood that was red hot just a moment ago began to cool and it became dark. And then the pastor looked at that and then he took the poker and then he pushed the poker of the, of the wood back into the fire where it reignited and lit a flame. And he looked over at the, the man who was grieved because of the loss of his wife, and he just nodded, and he got up and he walked out. Well, the next Sunday, that man showed up at worship because the object lesson of the pastor was, was heard, as it were. He understood that he needed the body of Christ. He needed the family of God. He needed to be in the assembly because what happens corporately when we come together, there is something wonderful that takes place. We are encouraged to pray and to sing. And it's a good, good thing. When I hear people say that they don't need the church to worship, I tell them, no, you're wrong. You do. And they will, you're saying, Pastor, that I need to go to church in order to love Jesus? Well, what I'm telling you is that Jesus died on the cross for his church. And if you love Jesus, then you'll love the things Jesus loved. And what Jesus loved was his church. We need the body of Christ, and the body of Christ needs us. Now, that's how we're to worship, right? You know, we're passionately, publicly, intentionally, thankfully, wholeheartedly. That's how we're to worship, right? But why? Why are we to worship? You know, Psalm 111 gets into that, verses 2 through 9. When we think about this, um, 
the works of the Lord. We see this occurring several times within the psalm. In, in, in verse 2, we see the works of the Lord. In verse 3, the work. In verse 4, wondrous works. He has shown His people the power of His works. The works of His hands in verse 7 are faithful and just. So it's the work of the Lord. The, the Lord is good, but His goodness, His holiness, His, His providence, all of these things manifest themselves and show themselves to us so that through the works of the Lord. Notice what he says. He says in verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord. Now, he's not talking about the number of works of the Lord, but rather he's talking about how grand the works of the Lord are. Again, last week we talked about um, you know, mitosis and meiosis and how even in the smallest things we see the evidence of God's creation. Well, in this it's saying, like, think about how great these things are. As a matter of fact, um, just to throw out, I was rebuked after this worship service by Ken Demarest, who said that it's really physics, not biology, that speaks to the Lord. He was obviously joking, you know, and I'm like, oh, Ken, yeah, just get out of here, you know. But I, let, let me throw this out there. Um, you know, Psalm 111, verse 2, is actually inscribed in Cambridge, England, in a science laboratory in Cambridge, England, called the Cavendish Laboratory named after the 18th century English chemist and physicist, Sir Henry Cavendish. And on that building, it is distinguished by having the words of Psalm 111, verse 2, inscribed over the entrance to its building as a charter for every believing science, scientist. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Isn't it sweet that we see that, those things happening? So when we think about how great God is, when we think about these things, let me encourage you in this way. I think one of the, when we think about the greatness of God, we think about, you know, um, let, let me give you an example. The James Webb Space Telescope. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about, but there's a new telescope that has been launched and it's now uh, sending pictures back to us. And let me just tell you, like, go Google the James Webb Space Telescope at Images, and you will be blown away by how grand and majestic and enormous God is. I mean, when you look at it, go, go look at the Southern Ring Nebula and just think about that, how great God is. Or let, let me give you another example. You know, when we think about this, this is science. I, I do like science. Did you know that the Earth... Um, orbits the sun at an average speed of 67,000 miles per hour, or 18 and a half miles a second. We just did 190 miles while I was reading that quote. Did you know that? Isn't that incredible? Or the sun, earth, and the entire solar system are also in motion, orbiting the center of the Milky Way at a blazing 140 miles a second. Think about that. Our whole solar system is going around the Milky Way at 140 miles a second. Meanwhile, we're orbiting the sun at 18 and a half miles a second. Now, I, I put that out there just because like, you look at that and you go, wow. Again, we, we go to Psalm 11, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, 
when we think about studying and delighting in them, again, this is a, a call, I think, to, to study the, the creation of the world. This word work, great are the works of the Lord, the Hebrew word works is actually speaking about creation there. The idea of creation in the midst of God creating things. And we study all of them who delight in them. We should study creation. We should see it. And it all points to this amazing God who has worked all these things out for his people. Now, verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. Now, that word for work is actually speaking about not creation, but it's speaking about the providence of God, the ruling, sustaining, governing aspects of who God is. You see, we, we, we do not believe in a deist God who spun the world into existence and pushed it far off into space, and, apart from, and now he's apart from it, but we believe in a God who actually is involved in his created order, who's involved with his children, who's involved with those that he has redeemed. So when, we, and when it says in verse 3, when it says that full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever, it's speaking about the providence of God. Now, the providence of God is, let me, let me um, try to explain it in this way. The providence of God is the invisible hand of God inside the glove of human circumstances. Let me read that again. It is the invisible hand of God inside the glove of human circumstances. And we see God, it means that he is ordering and directing and controlling all the events and circumstances of life through his providence. And when we think about all of these things that God has going on in the world today, right now, at this very second, worldwide, not just here in this room, but everywhere, we go, wow. Or we, we are in awe. And we go, yes, our God is an awesome God. So why do we show up? I mean, I think that's, a, again, why do we show up to worship on Sunday? Why should we praise God? I think that every child that wakes up early on Sunday morning and gets in the car and they look at you and they go, oh, why are we going to church? You should be able to tell them this is why. Because our God is an amazing God who has given you the ability to show up this morning. He's created and controls all things. He is worthy of our worship. Matter of fact, there is nothing else in the universe that is worth our worship. I hope that kids ask you that question. I hope that kids come in and, and, I, and there's an aspect too. Like, I love it. Like, I, when we leave worship and we go, to like, pick your kids up and, and then the kids all sort of assemble at the, at the gym and, and the gym becomes sort of a, this um, um, almost like, it becomes a, a really dangerous area. Uh, it becomes, I mean, you walk in and you're probably going to get hit by a ball. Okay, that's just the way it is. I'm sorry, but that, that probably will happen. Right? Watch where you're, you're, you're moving because you might hit a child, child might hit you, all of those kind of things. And I hope that kids, when they come, they're, they're coming not because they want to play in the gym, but when we tell them like, this is the best part of worship is that we get to worship our Lord. 
It's not playing basketball or hula hoops or these other things. But what did you learn today about who God is? The thing about Psalm 111 is that we learn about who he is, the character, the attributes of God. As a matter of fact, as you look through you know, Psalm 111, it's just amazing when it says, full of splendor and majesty is his work. You know, the Lord is gracious and merciful. When we think about the adjectives to describe the characteristics of who God is, not only is he gracious and merciful, he's also the provider of food. He remembers, he never forgets, he's omniscient. You know, he has shown his people, you know, the works of his hands are faithful and just. He's, he's the creator God. You know, things that he establishes are forever and ever. They never end. He is faithful, he is upright, and he has sent redemption to his people. So not only does he hear us, not only is he holy and awesome is his name, but he has entered into a relationship with his people, saving his people, loving his people, redeeming his people, and we go, that's why we show up on Sunday. That's why we do it. We come in the midst so that we can worship a God who loves us, and he calls us to worship himself. It's a good thing. Again, as as we think about why you know, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. There's this idea of he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Essentially, he is setting up a memorial to himself. I mean, God is so great that he's setting up a monument unto himself. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now, in, in verse 5, it's specifically speaking about he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Now, When we think about providing food, we think about this. We think about the Old Testament picture of manna, of manna whereby God six out of seven days would would allow manna, this this honey wafer-like substance to lay on the ground so that the people of Israel in the midst of their 40 years of wilderness wanderings would be able to be sustained with food. That's what we think about. But when we think about, you know, he provides food for us, we think it's spiritually, we think about this spiritually, and we think about who is the bread of heaven. It's Jesus. This great, you know, salvation that we have, and we think about communion. We think about, you know, feasting upon his, his body and, and being, you know, his, his blood being a sacrifice for our sins. He has shown, so when we think about he, is, he is, provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Now, that is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, where when God went to prophet Abraham, or uh, Father Abraham, one of the patriarchs, he said, I will make you into a great nation, and I will give you land, you know, that you will possess. But when he says, but I will remember your covenant, when he gives food, he's saying, I'm remembering what I did for you. I remember what I did with Abraham, and I fulfilled it in the days of Moses. The works of his hand are faithful and just. Um, Or he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. So there's an allusion there, not only from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Moses, but then also to Joshua, the conqueror who went in and conquered Canaan. He's saying, I dispossessed the nations for you. I gave you a land. I have made you a promise and I have fulfilled that promise to you. Isn't it good that we have a God who makes promises and fulfills promises. If he made the promise, he will fulfill it. Rest in that. Why do we worship? 
The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. Meaning that God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have white out. He doesn't need the little red line underneath the Word document that says that you messed up the spelling of that word. Everything that God does is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. They are established forever and ever. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. Everything that is written within the word of God is trustworthy and is meant for us to be studied. He is, his splendor and greater are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. I mean, why do we study the Bible? So that we will know who God is. And we will know in the midst of our communion with God what he is calling us to how we are to live, how we are to love. We need this. I love what he says in in verse 9. He says, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Now the idea of he sent redemption to his people, this is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the psalmist is speaking forward here. He's speaking, now the psalmist is speaking backwards towards the great redemption event that happened in the Old Testament, which was the Exodus, you know, with the Exodus out of slavery and bondage into the promised land. But as we, of people of, of the New Testament or people post-New Testament, this is what we see. We see that he has sent redemption to his people. And he has sent redemption to his people in the form of a person. And this person, Jesus, shows up And he dies on the cross, a death that we deserved, and lived a life so that his righteousness might be credited to our accounts for all those who believe. That's the gospel message. That's the great exchange. We receive from Jesus his righteousness, and he receives from us all of our sin. That's good news. The redemption that we see. So again, how are we to worship? Why are we to worship? And then he sums it up in verse 10. And this is, in verse 10, is this idea of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now it's linked to Psalm 112, because when you look at Psalm 112, it actually gives us an illusion about what the fear of the Lord is. Praise the Lord. It says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now, remember what I said about Hebrew poetry, that there's this aspect of parallelism that occurs within Hebrew poetry. So what is fearing the Lord there? Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Well, let me explain it or amplify it. It is who greatly delights in his commandments. So there's an aspect of fearing the Lord. And again, I think there's a lot of confusion about fearing the Lord, right? Like, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Um, as a matter of fact, if you, if you think about the great um, prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, it speaks about, you know, the coming of the Lord. Um, and it actually says that he will actually fear the Lord. That Jesus, in the midst of Isaiah chapter 11, upon his coming that he will actually fear the Lord. Let me read it. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. And we get all that. We're like, yes, I get it. Might and counsel. And, and, but then it says, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. There's this aspect of this Isaiah prophecy that Jesus fulfills that he would be one who fears the Lord. Now we understand the idea of fear of the Lord from maybe Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we see, I never thought about like, wow, Jesus actually feared the Lord? Jesus, there was an aspect of Jesus where he would fear the Lord and be full of that. Um, and so what does that mean exactly? This idea of fearing the Lord. Let me um, shed some light. There's a, I'm reading from a book by a man named Michael Reeves. He writes a book called Rejoice and Tremble. It's all about the fear of the Lord. Um, let, me, let me put it like this. Spurgeon would say, it is not because we are, uh, are afraid of him, afraid of the Lord, but because we delight in him that we fear before him. And the more we fear the Lord, the more we love him until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. This idea of fearing the Lord. You know, he, he also says um, in this way, let me, let me quote um, Thomas Aquinas you know, the great Roman Catholic theologian, um, in, in his work, Summa, uh, I can't even, Theologiae, um, I'll let um, Jason rebu rebuke me for the butchering of that Latin later. Um, Aquinas made a distinction between types of fear, and he defined them in this way. He said, there are two types of fear described in the Word of God. There is a filial fear, meaning a, a fear that comes from being a son or a daughter of God, and there is also a servile fear which, by which one fears punishment. Servile fear or filial fear. Now, we are speaking about the idea of a filial fear, a, a child of God understanding that. Again, you know, when, when Jesus was... Um, was growing, yet the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus could not have grown in wisdom without the fear of the Lord, and he is the spirit-anointed Christ who Isaiah prophesied would come forth from the stump of Jesse that I read earlier. But, but let me sum it up like this. In childlike fear, this filial fear, okay, that's the filial fear, Spurgeon says it like this. In this childlike fear, there is not an atom of that fear which signifies being afraid. We're not afraid of. We who believe in Jesus are not afraid of our Father. God forbid that we ever should be. The nearer we can get to him, the happier we are. Our highest wish is to be forever with him and to be lost in him. But still we pray that we may not grieve him. We beseech him to keep us from turning aside from him. We ask for his tender pity towards our infirmities and plead with him to forgive us and to deal graciously with us for his dear son's sake. 
as loving children. And if you are in Christ, that means you, a loving child. As loving children, we feel a holy awe and reverence as we realize our relationship to him who is our father in heaven. A dear, loving, tender, pitiful father, yet our heavenly father who is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Here's how I'd like to sum this up. When, if, if the Lord God of heaven were to show up, then we would all fall and bow down to him. Isn't it funny when some people say like, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this. I'm like, no, you're not. You're going to fall on your face. You're going to fall on your face before the Lord God of heaven, and you're not going to be so prideful that you think that you're going to ask him questions that you have been pondering. I think, you know, all these questions that we have about heaven, just as an aside, either we'll get the answer in heaven or we just won't care anymore. But as we fall in reverence to our Father in heaven, as a filial fear, we fall towards him. Does that make sense? In reverence, we fall, but in filial love and love for the Father, we fall as we approach him. We fall and we lean asking, Lord God, help me. Because here's the deal. If we are fearing the Lord and we are falling towards him, he will keep his promises. He will pick us up. He will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we will fear no evil. That's what fearing the Lord is. Understanding that we have a good, good Father, a loving Father, an omnipotent, all-powerful Father who has saved us from our sins. We get to celebrate that. And really, we get to celebrate that in the midst of communion. Because when we think about the redemption that He has brought to His people from, you know, again, from Psalm 111, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. I mean, that is, that is what we do here in the midst of communion. Because when we think about you know, the, the, the bread and, and the juice um, that represents his blood, this, this bread is, represents his body broken for us. It represents Jesus' body broken for us. And this fruit of the vine, this this, we, we have juice here, but you know, it was wine then. When we think about it, we're saying that this represents, this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So that when we come up, we are declaring, we are declaring that our sins are forgiven and that our Father in heaven, whom we love and we have great fear of, great filial fear of, has saved us. And he is worthy of our worship. And he invites us the people of God, to commune with Him. That's what communion is. We are communing with our Father in heaven. 1 Corinthians 11, the words of institution. The Apostle Paul writes about this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We get to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he does come, communion will end because we will enter into the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And this is meant to whet your appetite for what is to come. This is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord, and he invites all those who trust and believe in him to partake. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not unsure about who Jesus is, I would say don't partake, but rather choose Christ. Recognize your need for forgiveness and a Savior, and tell one of our elders. There'll be elders up front who can pray with you. Speak to them about your, your faith in Jesus. Again, um, let me remind you that uh, we'll have uh, these two sections come up the middle aisle over there. These two sections will come up this aisle, and then you'll, you'll go back um, either down this way or this way. You guys understand the choreography at this point, hopefully. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we think about communion, Father, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would sing for your glory, that we would know the joy, the joy, the joy of knowing you. Father, thank you that you have saved us through the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that Jesus came and took away all of our sins upon himself. He took upon himself all of our sins. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. And as we partake, we pray that you would set aside these elements from their common use. Father, this will always remain juice. It will always remain bread. But Father, we pray, Lord, that you would pour forth upon your people your grace, that grace upon grace would pour forth upon us and we might know the blessing of being in Christ. So Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.